Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Director of NED's International Forum. I think today's episode is going to be a very interesting one as we re-examine something that we as researchers have increasingly taken for granted, the opportunities that technology has provided to access records and articles digitally. The Internet has made it easier than ever before to conduct research on a variety of primary sources. But as China and other authoritarian regimes hone their digital censorship capacities at home, we're seeing these strategies being applied in ways that affect the ability of researchers further afield to access data, historical records, archive publications, and other scholarly materials. Today's featured guest is someone who, after encountering this in his own research work, has been raising important questions about the implications of China's digital censorship capabilities and how it may shape the world's understanding of China. We're pleased to welcome Glenn Tiffert, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, who's here to discuss new frontiers of digital censorship. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You've told the story uh, before uh, in other settings, and we'd really be delighted if you could tell us how you stumbled across what is really a remarkable um, form of sanitizing uh, of archival records and historical data um, within China. Could you give us a little bit of background on that? Absolutely. Uh, I am trained as a historian of the Chinese legal system, and particularly 20th century China. Uh, And so in the course of my research, I've accumulated a lot of paper materials uh, over the years. And recently, I was going through a file cabinet of photocopies I'd made from some major Chinese law journals from the 1950s, which I knew were available online now. And so I thought, well, I I can free up this space. I can chuck all of these uh, law journal photocopies into the recycling bin. But knowing China, I decided to go through them individually to ensure that every single one of them was, in fact, downloadable on one of these new online academic article databases, which all of us in academia use regularly to do our research and to get our sources. And so as I was going through these Chinese databases, which host these journals, and they are only available in China, we foreign scholars are completely dependent on these databases databases. Uh, I discovered that there were some gaps in the record. There were articles missing uh, from these journals. And more than that, because I was familiar with the area and the topics covered in this journal, I knew that the omissions were in some sense significant, uh, that they weren't random or arbitrary. And so I decided to make that a research project and to study the nature of what was missing, to try to determine the logic that was guiding what was missing, and to determine if, in fact, we had a sort of systematic form of state censorship that was occurring, and to see how broad that might be. Did it extend beyond these just few journals in these few years, or did it extend to the entire database and almost any type of topic you might want to to look into in Chinese studies? And you found once you got into this, apparently it was more systematic than you might have thought. Absolutely. Um, I was able to retain a number of Chinese research assistants, and we digitized these journals, and then we applied a lot of common computational tools for studying Uh, texts to them, and we reverse-engineered the censorship that was occurring, and it was definitely content-based censorship that was meant to essentially erase certain ideas and people from the historical record, ideas and people that are deeply inconvenient to narratives that today's PRC propounds about itself and its history 
and, the, and in particular its relationship to the rule of law. What do you think the broader implications are for how authoritarian regimes try to manage the story that's told about them in the world? Is this just a matter of narrow propaganda, or does it have deeper implications for historical memory? Right. So I think this is just a single, if, if you might say, illustrative case of a much deeper problem. Uh, the principal audience here is a Chinese domestic audience, and the Chinese government is trying to put forth a narrative about Chinese history and ultimately China's future uh, that comports with its current agendas and priorities. But in a sense, collaterally, China's also uh, putting forth an image of itself into the world. And in particular, with respect to the rule of law, it's proposing that it has its own unique solution to the rule of law that is distinct uh, and perfectly uh, is a perfect valid alternative to Western conceptions of the rule of law and human rights. And you see China doing this in a variety of spheres. Human rights is one. The internet is another. Rule of law is yet another. Environmental regulation is another. China carving out a unique space and putting forth its version of these basic concepts. Uh, to the extent that it can go back into its history and say, we have a unique approach to the problem of the rule of law, it allows them to then say, you know, these Western standards don't apply to us. And essentially, not only Chinese scholars would be unaware of the complexity and diversity of scholarly thought within China over the years, but also ultimately Western scholars trying to delve back in history there would simply be no record that there was ever an alternative opinion offered. Is that correct? Absolutely. One thing that makes this current wave of censorship, the, the digital censorship, different than traditional forms of paper censorship is that the consolidation of our information onto digital sources means that any changes made onto the servers propagate instantaneously around the world. With a few keystrokes, they can make this information disappear globally. And so it impacts the way uh, Chinese people understand their own history, but it also impacts what foreigners can learn about China. And so you've touched on the, the China version of this challenge, but China's a special case in a sense. It has enormous resources. It has a purposeful approach to this kind of censorship. How should we think about the possibilities of this sort of model being diffused and possibly used in other countries? I think this is indicative of larger structural and technological shifts in our information ecosystem. China, in a sense, is the canary in the coal mine or perhaps the early warning sign of what may be to come. The transaction costs of this kind of digital censorship are falling with every year. Uh, the algorithmic tools are improving that they can use to censor content. They're used every day around the world in social media content. Uh, and so China, in a sense, is proving us what is possible. And the easier those tools get, uh, and the better they get, the temptation to use them globally, uh, I think, will will increase. China's proposing you know, a unique form of networked authoritarianism that is teaching, in particular, illiberal regimes around the world how they can turn the technologies of the information age to their advantage. This is an, uh, another arrow in their quiver. In, in a sense, these um, initiatives that are undertaken they're, they're really uh, quite daunting when you think about them. And so the question arises, what sorts of practical, um, achievable steps are within reach for those who would uh, have a different vision for how historical records and data and information should be safeguarded, how its integrity can be assured? 
I think this is a broader problem. It's one thing to say it's just China, and I think at the moment we've demonstrated it clearly with respect to China, but I think it, what we learn from the Chinese example is applicable to almost any corner of scholarly debate and, and the scholarly record. Americanists, Europeanists, people who study other parts of the world, people who study the social sciences or the medical sciences should be alert to the fact that the consolidation of our knowledge base onto these digital servers, in many cases controlled by for-profit companies, which may have very different priorities and standards of, of custodianship than traditional academic libraries, that it raises profound questions about how we protect our knowledge, preserve it, and maintain the integrity of, of the wisdom we derive from that knowledge and maintain our historical memory. So let me just pick up on that. You know, you've, you've mentioned how academic publishing has moved from the realm of the university increasingly more into the for-profit and private sector. Have there been any instances recently that come to mind of uh, publishers taking into account the Chinese government's wishes and privileging those above what might be considered academic standards or, or the need for all to get access? Well, there are a couple of well-known examples that occurred in the last year of Cambridge University Press agreeing to censor about 300 articles from a prestigious British journal from its online website viewable in China. Now, Cambridge, uh, because it's an academic press, uh, I think it, it understood the reputational damage it suffered uh, once that was publicized, and it ultimately reversed itself. And hopefully we can all learn from that example. But a counterexample is Springer Nature, a German privately held press, which bills itself as the largest academic press in the world. They essentially said that public, that censoring about a thousand of their own publications was a cost of doing business in the PRC. And uh, I think it's, it, it's a wake-up call. Uh, the PRC is increasingly able to use its market power simply as a tool to kind of extract concessions from these firms which are looking at their bottom lines in a way that traditional academic libraries didn't have to. Does it matter who is compiling the databases and does it matter whether their servers are located within China as opposed to outside China? It does in some cases, yes. Uh, the Chinese government obviously has much tighter control over data that's housed within China. And one of its approaches to internet governance has been forcing foreign technology companies to in fact host their data in China so that the Chinese government can access it but also control it better. To the extent that data is outside of China, it's harder for them to reach. Now in my own experience using academic databases that have the online record of the People's Daily, which is the Communist Party's official newspaper, I discovered that uh, depending upon which vendor you use in the United States, some vendors have their servers hosted in China, others vendors have their servers hosted outside of China, you will get different search results and different content and different experiences. And so the geography does in fact matter. And now you've touched on the, the range of sectors for which these issues and challenges are relevant. The university sector, the libraries within them, the tech sector. At some level, one could argue that collective action is really essential to safeguard standards of free expression and to make sure that the costs of doing business are not uh, really uh, foregoing uh, free expression and academic expression. But collective action is extremely difficult. What sorts of things need to happen, in your view, in the foreseeable term to put in place the building blocks for at least a reasonable shot at the sort of collective action that would safeguard uh, democratic standards of free expression? 
I think that's absolutely right. Collective action is a huge problem here. Uh, many people react to the story that I'm telling by saying that censorship in China is no great surprise. We knew China censored. How does that impact us? Is that simply a unique story to China? And my answer to that is no. Uh, in fact, China is an early warning sign of things to come and that the lessons China is teaching and learning will be replicated around the world by other illiberal regimes, but they also pose fundamental problems and questions for us about how we preserve our digital knowledge and how we can authenticate it and ensure that the, that the wisdom we derive from it is actually valid. Uh, you know, we, there's a lot of discussion in the United States about fake news. We want to avoid that conversation when it comes to our digital knowledge base, because the minute we enter that territory, it is corrosive of the trust essential. Um, you will never know uh, once that trust is eroded whether the sources you're using are authentic, whether they're real, whether they're deep fakes, whether they're forms of disinformation, and whether your use of them, in fact, then ends up propagating or, or favoring the agendas of the censors and the people who created those sources. That's, that's something we want to avoid. And so China, in a, in a way, is an opportunity to say to the larger community that we can get out in front of this problem uh, and protect our own authority, the authority of the sources we have, but the knowledge we derive from it as well. And given given how complicated this challenge is, in your view, what sorts of steps should happen sooner rather than later to uh, get a better outcome in the scheme of things? Right. I mean, one of the first steps that has to happen is I think uh, American academic professional societies like the American Historical Association, the American Political Science Association need to have discussions among their members and establish a statement of principles about commitments to the integrity of their source base and also standards of how they expect the custodians of those sources to treat those sources, what kinds of assurances they will receive uh, from the largely commercial providers who have taken on this. But also contract law is key here too. Cambridge University Press censored those articles uh, without consulting the journal's editors or the authors of the articles. If it was written into contract that they could not do that, uh, or they could not do that without informing them publicly. I think that would be part of it too, because then the firms would be on record that they were censoring and they might be inhibited rather than doing these things quietly. Uh, similarly, uh, to require them to have notations or placeholders on their website saying that a particular article is not available in this market, uh, I think would go a long way towards saying, oh, there's something missing here. So, you know, it's fascinating. I think you had mentioned earlier people tended to sometimes toss up their hands and say, well, it's China, China's going to censor, what are you going to do? But you're saying there's actually, there are actually things that can be done irrespective of China, more principles that can be put in place and processes that can be put in place that can help guard against this. I know you said that it isn't primarily or only a technological issue, but is there anything that can be done on the technological front as well? Absolutely. Uh, there are various international standards um, that relate to uh, preserving the integrity of information in archives um, that are in very technically well-defined. They're expensive to do, and as a result, most archives don't do them, and there has not yet been enough demand for that. That's one way where professional societies and academics can overcome the collective problem, that they can issue statements saying we have certain expectations that our data will be housed meeting these standards to preserve the integrity of the data. I think that is key too. Things, basic things like end-to-end -end encryption, digital signatures, a happy medium between security and convenience that gives us the assurance that we know what we're getting and what we're getting is what we think we're getting and that we're, what, what, what we're getting is the full story as well. 
So let me get a little fanciful for a second, but say nothing changes. Say we're unable to overcome the collective action problem. Take us into a future where we continue along this trajectory. What does it look like? Right. Uh, I'm deeply concerned that uh, China's already shown that it has the market power to force international firms to adjust the way they present information globally and not just within China. Um, we've seen recently how airlines and hotel chains and entertainment companies have accommodated China with respect to the question of Taiwan. We've seen how Apple's own censorship of Taiwan within China has leaked outside of China and affected the way people use their iPhones even in the United States. A certain subset of iPhones, if they're configured the right way, would crash if you sent a text containing the word Taiwan or the Taiwanese flag emoji. I see a world in which we encounter these kinds of problems over and over again, and not just with respect to China, but also with respect to other countries as they learn that what, has, what China has done is sort of a proven technology, it works, and it's more effective than the traditional forms of censorship. The more we go digital, the more our knowledge is digital, the easier it is to sort of apply these algorithmic tools to kind of reshape and dynamically from day to day reshape our knowledge base. And one way to think of this is that, on the one hand, um, the scale and the speed of the changes, some of them driven by the digital age, um, with respect to these new forms of censorship, has been so profound that we're really just getting our bearings in the uh, in open societies and, in a sense, educating ourselves. If we, in your view, if we were to propel the, the learning and understanding these things, say, in countries that um, haven't had deep engagement on these issues in the way our publishers and academic institutions have in the U.S. and in countries in Europe, what needs to happen? Can we rely on, on governments alone to do this, or is there a role for civil society to play in helping that understanding? This is a very tough question because I think the places that are most vulnerable are those that lack the institutional support for free expression. Um, these are very high-risk countries that already face challenges with respect to free expression. I think the digital tools will make the control of free expression easier for them. And so I, I think a bad situation will go to worse in those countries unless we can get out in front of this problem. Here in the United States, we're having a very useful debate about the extent to which our social media firms can be arbiters of free speech. I think that is absolutely applicable. In fact, it's happening in parallel to what's happening in China. In a funny sort of way, we're having similar discussions about the same sets of technologies, whether you look in Europe with respect to the right to forget, in the United States about the role that social media like Facebook and Twitter play in regulating speech and suppressing, demoting, or, uh, or repackaging and customizing speech for particular users, uh, filtering out hate speech, and in China, filtering out politicized speech. When you get under the hood, into the black box, the technologies are largely the same. And so we're looking at the same beast sort of from different angles. You know, you brought up some of the debates that are happening in the U.S. and Europe around similar issues. And what strikes me is that, you know, the role of civil society that Chris mentioned is quite strong. And actually, you hear a lot of debate and different points of view that are helping to shape policy. To what extent do you see any of that public debate emerging around these issues within China itself? So when it comes to altering the historical record, are scholars there able to talk about this even amongst themselves, or is it just understood and not addressed? They do talk about it among themselves privately. It's widely understood, and it's simply the weather. 
Uh, it's something they must accommodate themselves to, and sometimes it's a little bit worse, sometimes it's a little bit better. Uh, and it's an unfortunate set of circumstances that kind of defines the universe that they live in. Um, what has changed in part is that digitization has also allowed the Chinese government to export that weather onto us, uh, and, and it becomes our reality as well. Uh, and this is largely because sort of economic forces are forcing our libraries to get rid of paper to free up space. It's expensive to store this stuff. Increasingly, it's born digital anyway, so why not subscribe to these databases? That gives China leverage in a, in a way that they did not have before. They could have censored these things in the past domestically, but internationally, we would have had access to the hard copy. Uh, increasingly, that's not the case. Right. I mean, if you hadn't had those hard copies of the journals, we never might have stumbled upon this. You might never have had this research project. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the danger, of course, is that um, as the years pass, that's, that will not be available to us anymore. We will not know what's missing. Uh, and what digital makes unique is that uh, in the past, censors would, would do their handiwork. And then whatever made it into the published record would be part of the published record. And it took a lot of effort and energy for them to revisit past choices that an earlier generation of sensors might have made. These algorithms are tireless. They don't sleep. They can be adjusted day to day. Uh, and so really, it, think of it as a, as a moving window uh, that, you know, Xi Jinping wakes up in a bad mood, the window's going to get a little bit bigger. Uh, if he's in a good mood, the window will get a little bit smaller this week. Uh, but the window is always shifting, and it can do so very, very easily in a way that was not true in the past. And given the research you've done to date, is your sense that most of the censorship of the historical material you've reviewed has been done by humans, or is it the case that it may be more automated at this point? At this, I think we're at the cusp of automation right now. The censorship that I have identified it looks like it was done by humans who are highly trained and knowledgeable in the sources that they're working in. They were knowledgeable about the historical context of those sources, but also, most importantly, their bearing on current debates. So they were making choices about which bits of our history do we want to erase because they're inconvenient for the here and now. And digital allows them to do that, you know, non-destructively. Uh, they can make a set of choices this week, a different set of choices next year. And you would never really know uh, without the hard copy to go on. And that's what's most troubling. And given the, the pace of AI development within China, what should we be mindful of with respect to the work you've been doing with these historical uh, records? So one of the goals of my project was not only to, to use the, the computational tools of text analysis to try to reverse engineer the logic of the sensors, but to probe the question of what happens now. The technologies of content curation are moving very quickly, in part driven by social media. I mean, Facebook, Amazon.com, when they try to decide what you might want to buy, Netflix, when they decide what you might want to watch, are driving the AI tools that in part determine, you know, what information is available to us. And every advance that's made in those sectors accrues to the sensors as well, because under the hood, the tools are very much the same. So I, on my own, decided, well, let me try to build a predictive AI model that can, and one of the goals of AI is to see if you can achieve human competitive results. 
and my AI model uh, achieved 94% accuracy up against the human sensors, which means that we are very, and that's just me, you know, a well-resourced um, a firm or set or bank of programmers, or, or in particular, even me with access to a larger data set, like the entire archive of this online database would be able to do even better. And at that point, it's simply a matter of time before the algorithm takes over in the same way that the algorithm does most of the content curation on Facebook right now. And you have an, a higher level of humans who are sort of doing the quality control on the edge cases. Um, we're on that. We're on that sort of cusp right now with respect to content censorship in China, and China's leading the way. And I'm sure that other regimes will follow. So I'd like to get a sense of what uh, everyone is reading and what they're finding particularly interesting. Um, share that with our listeners. Why don't we start with you, Glenn? Right. Right. Well, I, I decided to, to sort of go outside of my little patch. Um, a book that I think, in in many ways, is a book I wish I could have written is Robert Kagan's new The Jungle Grows Back. Um, I think it's it's the right book for the moment, in the sense that it reminds us that um, much that we have taken for granted in the last 70 years of relative peace and prosperity in the world was achieved with tremendous effort and a lot of resources in trying to maintain, and that we must not throw it away casually. Uh, I think it's a it's a the right book for the time, and it uh, it's a book that should be widely read, particularly here in Washington, as I'm sure it will be. And Shanti, what do you have on your reading list? One book that I'm starting right now that is already fascinating to me is this book called China's Great Wall of Debt by the Australian financial journalist Denny McMahon. Uh, it's primarily, I think, exploring whether or not we fully understand the extent of the Chinese government's debt levels and whether that's at dangerous levels or not. But to me, it relates to the conversation that we've been having because it's predicated upon an assumption that we really don't know what we don't know about Chinese statistics, that a lot of what outside economists and financial writers and so on, all that information and all these decisions are predicated on these statistics that are generated that may not actually have basis in fact and that can be manipulated by the Chinese government. When you think about the tremendous amounts of money that are involved, not just within China, but globally, um, it's really staggering, and it, it takes me back to my time as a financial journalist working in Hong Kong. I wish I could go back and have a do-over on some of those studies and some of those reports that I wrote because, um, you know, I, I think we didn't at that time, which was in the 90s and even now, really fully take into account how difficult it was to get the true picture of China's economy. And for my part, I've just read China scholar Margaret Roberts' really terrific book, Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall. She does a masterful job of explaining the nuance of the Chinese authorities' censorship and how that's evolved over time and matured to the point it's reached uh, now. And frankly, reading it and hearing you, Glenn, I, I see some uh, consistency between the sort of um, surgical and selective sort of censorship that they've been able to apply across a range of sectors in, in China. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. If you'd like to check out more of what our guest has written about these issues, please look at Glenn Tifford's article, Turning Scholars into Unpersons, published in the summer 2018 issue of Hoover Digest. It can be found on his individual page on the Hoover Institution website. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, 
where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org backslash ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Chris Walker and Glenn Tiffert. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on new frontiers of digital censorship and hope you'll join us for future Power 3.0 podcasts.